we're going to start off by looking at a question asked of Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Before I begin, I want you to think back to school days. When you were a student, did you ever think, okay, let's be honest, what is the least I can do to get the grade that I want? <laughs> you know, some students are particularly calculating when it comes to grades. If I do this extra credit, I will get an A. If I get a 90 on the test, I can still miss one assignment and get a B, and so forth. So that's what's happening in the scripture um, in Luke when a lawyer asked Jesus this question. In Luke 10, 25 through 29, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to, to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So a lawyer is putting Jesus to the test. Now, I just have a hint for you all. Don't think you can outsmart Jesus. <laughs> that was his first mistake. <laughs> and then I also love in this passage how Jesus is quizzing a lawyer about the law. That's pretty smart of Jesus. So if Jesus was grading the lawyer's answer, what would be his grade? Well, 100%, right? He answered correctly. But the test wasn't over. In an afterthought, the lawyer blew it. Jesus knew the lawyer's heart. As the lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor? A lawyer wouldn't be calculating, would he? A lawyer wouldn't be bargaining, would he? A lawyer wouldn't be asking Jesus, what is the least I can do to get the score I need to get into heaven? Or would he? Scripture says the lawyer was trying to justify himself. Can't you picture him checking off the mental list, love the Lord with all your heart? Yeah, yeah, check. Love the Lord with all your soul? Sure, check. Love the Lord with all your strength? Of course, check. Love the Lord with all your mind? Well, I think so, check. And then he wondered about the part about loving my neighbor. Is loving my neighbor extra credit, or is it part of the requirements? Wait a minute, exactly who is my neighbor? I want to know, so I want to know who I don't have to love. I just want to love the people that I'm required to love to get into heaven. You see, we can personally and privately love God, but be unchanged if we want religion. But Christianity is meant to be relationship not religion. Relationship, my friends, does not leave us as the same person. Christianity is not a checklist, and it's not rules. Christianity is a dynamic relationship with a living, loving God, and that changes us. Loving Jesus is meant to wreck us in the best way possible. Loving God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind changes our heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
Our heart has compassion for others because he has compassion for others. Our wounded soul is healed so that we desire that healing for others. Our strength increases and our functionality as we are tutored by the Holy Spirit. And our mind is no longer captivated by fears and lies as we grow in confidence. Living in relationship with Jesus changes us. Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan as an answer to the lawyer's question. You know the story. I'm not going to go over it in detail, but <clears throat> basically a man was robbed and beaten and left on the road for dead. A priest passed by him and saw him and passed on the other side. <clears throat> a Levite did the same. But a Samaritan saw him and felt compassion. That's what God feels. He took care of him, saw that he was cared for, and paid for his care. Wait a minute. Aren't priests and Levites supposed to love God? Did they check off the list but forget the part about neighbors? Did they suffer the same problem as the lawyer? Did they want to get the grade and check off the list without their hearts being changed? The question is, how can we believe that we can love God without loving our neighbor? Loving God is dangerous. It's dangerous business, but it's the best thing we can ever do. Loving God will take us beyond our self-centered, fearful, small lives into a grand, risky, messy, and dangerous adventure. The love cycle works like this. The more you love God, the more that you know you're loved by God. The more you experience his love, the more you love others. Are you well loved? We're going to look at a few examples of being a neighbor in just a minute. But my confession is that I'm well loved by God. It was a decision I made. I've been a Christian for many years, but it wasn't until 2016 I settled it forever. I realized that he does things well. So is he going to love me poorly but be a, a good God? I realized that he's generous. Is he going to be generous to everyone else but me? I realized that his heart is for me, and that doesn't change. So that equals being well-loved. Does being well-loved by God mean that we don't experience hardship, like losing a loved one, like financial hardship, like cancer? I was diagnosed with cancer in February. Did that mean I was loved until then? No. How can I be well-loved and have cancer? I was well-loved because my Heavenly Father revealed my enemy to me. I was well-loved because he showed me a path to take. I was well-loved because he was with me in all things. I was well-loved because he delivered me from a lifestyle of sugar addiction that created an environment for cancer to grow. Through prayers, through his presence, and through surgery, I am cancer-free. Through Yay, yeah. <laughs> Woohoo! Through dietary and lifestyle changes and through a cancer survivor coach, I believe I can live cancer-free. That is love. That is his grace delivering me from a deeply entrenched lifestyle. And that is grace helping me exchange unhealthy patterns for healthy ones. And I'm still growing in that. But if you waffle back and forth on whether or not God loves you, based on your circumstances, end the waffling today. 
God has big plans for your life, but you have to believe you are well-loved and stand on that to move forward, period. I am no one special, but a foundational part of loving my neighbor is knowing his love and loving myself. Choosing well, choosing healthy, choosing truth over lies, choosing not to feel sorry for ourselves or to be victims, choosing to stand on truth is so worth it. God doesn't love you because he has to. He actually likes you. <laughs> and he doesn't love you only when you do the right thing. He does not turn his back on you in hardship. It is just the opposite. He's not skimpy, but as I said before, generous. He never fails or forsakes, and he is fully present with you, us. Can you say, I am well loved by God? Let's just pray. Lord, I just ask that you would help anyone struggling with this issue of whether or not you love them today. Show them your great unending love is not dependent on anything they do. You love well, and you've given the best gift you ever had, your son, for their debt. Thank you for the power in knowing we are well loved by you. Amen. Okay, I'm going to transition to loving my neighbor. There's three principles. Number one, simple. A neighbor is anyone who is near. Isn't that great? There's someone within a couple of seats of you, if not beside you. So we just need to open our eyes to see who is near to us. While sometimes we share space with people, sometimes God has divine appointments hidden in that time. How do we know? Well, as has been said before here, the Holy Spirit highlights someone or reminds us of someone. We can always pray for them, but we can also ask, Lord, is there any way you would have me interact with them? I love to ask store clerks and servers, how's your day going so far? After hearing their response and a bit of conversation, sometimes I will offer, hey, I'm a Christ follower and I love to pray. Is there anything I can pray for you today? What's the worst that could happen? They could say, no, thank you. I'm good and you're weird. <laughs> no, no one said that to me ever. <laughs> or they could be touched. This is more often the example. It's, they're touched by someone noticing them, by someone caring for a stranger and asking for prayer. Sometimes he highlights giving something to someone. I don't always hit it right, but it's fun when it happens. A 20-something friend of mine who loves donuts asked for an umbrella for a birthday but didn't get one. It just so happened that weeks earlier, the Lord had already highlighted a donut-decorated umbrella <laughs> in the store, which I bought for that very person, but she didn't get it till the days after her birthday. So the Lord shows love to neighbors, even in umbrellas. God's creative. He will use us in creative ways. A relative was addicted to drugs. He had accepted Christ at a Bible camp in middle school. On his 21st birthday, I didn't know what to do for him or get for him. We weren't allowed to send him money or gifts or gift cards because it all could lead back to drugs. So I did something that I thought I could do. It was the only thing I thought of, but I think it was inspired. For his birthday, I sent him 21 letters. Each letter spoke of his value, 
his identity, and his purpose. Did it change his life? Not that day. But he knew someone noticed him and someone expressed care. Another friend of mine lives in another state. Her five-year-old granddaughter needed laser treatments on her eyes for two weeks. The hard part was she had, each treatment took 45 minutes, and this five-year-old could not move the entire time, or else they would have to sedate her and put a pick line in. Anyway, my heart was so moved by my brave new friend. I illustrated a sticker and personal trivia book with a page for each day for her to do after her treatment. She loved the book. It wasn't done well, it was done <laughs> goofy, but she loved it. She was able to hold still for 45 minutes of the treatment that day. Did that little book change her life? No, but it showed her that someone noticed her and was cheering her on. So the second principle in loving our neighbors is offer what you have. I love in Acts 3, verses 1 through 9, Paul and John passed by a lame man at the temple who was begging for money. The Holy Spirit highlighted the man to Paul and John. They fixed their gaze on him. Now, do you think they ever saw him before that day? I think they'd passed by him hundreds of times. But that was his day. That was the day the Holy Spirit highlighted him. And they said to him, look at us. The lame man was getting excited. He thought he was going to get a couple of dollars there. But in verse 6, Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. As you know, as the story goes, the man not only walked, but he leaped for joy. The neighbor gave him so much more than money. He was given a new life, mobility, and a new identity. Number three, as you take a risk, expect God. Oxford had a weekly newspaper called the Oxford Press. The new editor named John Agliotta was very personable in his style and his observations of Oxford. He began sharing news that he and his wife Carla were expecting their very first child. Then the news took a turn as the pregnancy progressed. They were doing extra testing because something wasn't quite right. One day he shared his broken heart. Their beloved baby had a condition incompatible with life. He was only expected to live a few hours at birth. They were devastated. There was an obstetrical nurse in Oxford who was certified as a childbirth instructor and certified as a perinatal loss counselor. Although she'd never met the couple, she wrote John and Carla a letter and offered to meet with them and show support in any way she could. She sent a few materials, including a 16-page booklet saying goodbye to baby that she had authored. It was a risk for her, but the circumstances weighed on her heart. If you already have the support you desire, fine. But if the two of you would like to talk, feel free to call me, she wrote. She got a response right away. The couple wanted to take a childbirth class, but not with other couples who were expecting an uncomplicated birth. Would she teach them the basics of childbirth? Three strangers met. Breathing techniques were demonstrated. Parenting a dialed, 
dying child was discussed. Relaxation techniques were practiced, creating meaningful mem mementos, a funeral service, and burial options, medical, um, medication options for labor, and what to wear for family photos were discussed. Tears flowed and laughter erupted through their time together. The couple felt prepared as possible to face the joy and sadness of parenting the whole lifetime of their child in the labor suite. John wrote a book following the loss of Jacob. He wrote this. Before Debbie left, we prayed together and cried together. Gone were the nerves of the early evening. She was like part of the family. Jacob was now a part of her too. When she left, the formal handshakes that we shared, when she came transformed into hugs of friendship and connection. We still thank God for the angel he sent us and Debbie. So a neighbor is anyone who is near. We need to offer what we have, and we need to expect God to show up. Next, I'm going to look at the art of neighboring. The art of neighboring is basically that we look for neighbors and that we're motivated because we know God's love and it's flowing through us. Knowing that the kindness of God, thank you, Parker, for sharing that, leads to repentance. That's Romans 2, 4. I look at this sentence, the kindness of God leads to repentance. Kindness is you. Kindness is me. And you know what we are? We're gift wrap. We are what attracts people to open the gift of salvation. It says the kindness of God leads to repentance. So God needs us to be the ones that notice. He needs us to wear a bright ribbon, or black is fine too, <laughs> whatever you like. <laughs> I have lots of friends that love black, so um, <laughs> I'm not pointing anybody out here. So anyway, and then the third thing is to consistently commit to a lifestyle of compassion and being willing to pay a price. It's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us either time, energy, or resources. So I have some Hall of Fame champions of neighboring. The following people demonstrated a lifestyle of showing compassion. Corey Ten Boom is one of my heroes. While in a Nazi prison camp for hiding Jews during World War II, she faced the worst conditions possible. Prisoners were forced to hard labor. There was inhumane treatment. Um, there was not shelter in the frigid uh, snow. There were poor living conditions, rats and lice, and meager rations. Yet, after struggling with each hardship, and she you knew she was human because she complained about each one, but then she was able, through her sweet sister, to embrace the grace of God. At a time when prison, prisoners were literally starving to death, you know what Cordy did? She was able to share part of her daily porridge with someone who needed it more. Corey, who was imprisoned for sharing her time, her energy, and her resources to save Jews from death, did not stop sharing her time, her energy, and meager resources while in prison. Isn't that beautiful? You can find her story in a book and movie called The Hiding Place. My next um, champion is Fred Rogers. 
Has anybody watched Mr. Rogers? <laughs> okay, he's most known for hosting a, a children's TV show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood for over 30 years. He had a heart for absolutely everyone he met. Won't You Be My Neighbor was part of his opening every show. He created a sense of belonging for every child with a long, with the song, Won't You Be Mine. I won't sing it. You wouldn't want to hear it. <laughs> anyway, he created trust through gentle questioning and active listening. So one particular show during a time of racial unrest in the early 60s, Mr. Rogers invited the neighborhood policeman, Mr. Clemens, who happened to be black, to cool his feet by sharing the water in his wading pool and drying off with his towel. In his quiet and friendly way, Mr. Rogers was speaking boldly. He was breaking down barriers of segregation. He used his time and energy and resources to demonstrate love and kindness. Bravo, Mr. Rogers, for a beautiful day in the neighborhood. So Gladys Aylward worked as a maid in England um, to pay for passage to China. Now, she failed missionary school. How would you like to flunk out of missionary school? But she felt called to China, and she wasn't going to let lack of credentials stop her. So she earned her own way by working as a housemaid. The arrangements were for her to assist an aging, widowed missionary deep in China. Her determination and God's faithfulness saw her through a treacherous journey to get there. Once in China, she and her mentor ran an inn for travelers. The inn served some food and offered a, a large stone platform, it's called a kiang, for all guests to sleep on in a communal room. Their inn was set apart from others in that they told stories for entertainment. You might guess what their stories were. They were Bible stories. So Gladys grew to love these Chinese people, even though they hated her at first. They called her names. They threw mud at her when they saw her. But she earned the respect of the community, and her, um, she was asked to serve as a foot inspector to end the hurtful practice of foot binding. Gladys was asked by city authorities to break up an armed revolt in the prison. Unarmed. She was unarmed. And they said she could do it because she had God in her. <laughs> How'd you like to be chosen for that? <laughs> so she survived that, by the way. And then when China was invaded by Japan in war, Gladys single-handedly collected 94 orphan children and brought them through a war-ravaged land with flyovers and shootings over mountains, through a river, and without food rations to safety, and they sang hymns all the way. Gladys was a true hero, but a failed missionary student used her time, her energy, and her resources to share Christ's love with the people and children of China. You can find several books about her, and you can find her in the movie, The End of the Sixth Happiness. Then Rosaria Butterfield is my last champion in this category. She and her family opened their home to neighbors for simple dinners. The door was open and so were their hearts. They share a meal and then read the Bible nearly every weekday of the week. In summers, they just moved the dining room table out in the front lawn. 
because it's so much more convenient that way to gather everyone. Through sharing meals, they share life. Through sharing life, Rosaria offers hope through faith. Pain is prayed for, needs are met, love is demonstrated, stomachs are filled. Is she folding the laundry when a neighbor comes by? Well, the neighbor folds laundry or starts the pot of chili for dinner. All get involved in setting the table and all know this one thing, which has been said in Chris's testimony, they belong. Hospitality is not based on a perfect home, a perfect menu, or perfect table setting. Hospitality is based on loving, loving a stranger. Interestingly, Rosaria learned about neighborhood meals first when she was a professor of English at Syracuse University and as a leading member of the gay community. Through persistent hospitality of a Christian couple, however, she learned about the love of Jesus week after week. She entered into a relationship with Jesus and her love, that love relationship wrecked her. She changed her life dramatically. She left behind her previous lifestyle. She ended up marrying a pastor and began loving their church and the whole neighborhood, um, fostering kids, adopting kids, and along with their ministry, their goal was to mine beauty out of messy lives. The Butterfield's home, their budget, their time, their energy, and resources were all dedicated to loving neighbors. You can read Rosaria's story in the gospel comes with a house key. Now these, I'm gonna close with our most valuable players. These are supreme acts of neighboring. I love this story. There's the woman with the flask of perfume who anointed Jesus at Bethany. In Luke 7, 36 through 38, one of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, that's Jesus, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and was standing behind him at his feet. Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment." Now that sounds a little unusual to us in our day and age, but let me go to Matthew 26, 8 through 13. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Do you hear the words of Jesus? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The woman saw her neighbor Jesus. She knew her past life of sin and her new life because of him. She sought to honor him with all that she had. The flask of perfume represented a year's wages. Perhaps it was for her groceries for the next year. 
We don't know. Did the perfume represent her former lifestyle? Was it a gain of her sin? Was she laying that down before him? We do not know. But we do know that in that day, they entertained in courtyards, and sometimes people could just see what was going on and walk in. But she took a huge risk, don't you think? To boldly display her heart of thankfulness to Jesus. Her love for him overrode her apprehension about experiencing ridicule from the guests that were present. She probably had been mistreated by men much of her life, but this Jesus was different, and this Jesus was worth it. She ministered to Jesus in this act of neighboring. This woman was wrecked in the best way possible. Father God used a broken vessel to strengthen Jesus. Indeed, this beautiful act demonstrated her time, her energy, and her resources in serving Jesus, her neighbor. My last champion, of course, is Jesus. We have Jesus on the cross. Jesus was not only a savior, but a neighbor in the very last moments on the cross. Jesus was not the only one condemned on the day he died. There were two convicted criminals facing execution on crosses beside Jesus. Luke 23, 39 through 43 said, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we're receiving our due reward for our deeds. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what Jesus could have said? He could have said, hey man, I'm too tired. He said, I'm too busy. I don't have time right now, you see, to see you or to see your needs. I am busy dying. I am in pain. But I wonder if this cry for help did not, in fact, help Jesus. Jesus was moved with compassion, even in his last moments. Jesus used his time, his energy, and his resources to be a neighbor. As a matter of fact, John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no man than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. So as we wrap up, I just want to remind you of these snapshots we've seen today. We've seen a neighbor in prison share her meager surrey of porridge. We've seen a man in a neighborhood show that everyone in the neighborhood belongs. We've seen a mission school flunky rescue 94 orphans during wartime. We've seen a family through relationship with Jesus open their home for hospitality and completely change a neighborhood. We've seen a prostitute minister to Jesus before his death, and Jesus himself could not stop being a neighbor even as he was dying. So I'm gonna invite Kirsten to come up and the worship team, and Kirsten is gonna sing us a song. And it's a song about the alabaster vial. 
And I want you just to listen to the words, and I'd like you to think about this question. How has Jesus' love penetrated your life, and how has he changed you? And just allow worship to flow. Don't allow any condemnation. This is not a time to um, feel bad at what we haven't done, but it's more of a time of just being open, just being open to being that neighbor that um, shows the kindness of God that leads to a greater relationship. I'm going to say a prayer here, and then Kirsten will play. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your great unending love. Holy Spirit, just convince us of the constancy of Father's love. Lord, the love that you give is not meant to be hoarded. The love you give is meant to be given away. Lord, help us to see ourselves as vessels. Help us to pour out and what you, and what you pour in and look for you to fill us again. We cancel the lies of the evil one who would condemn us. That we are not enough and therefore disqualified the truth is, we are not enough without you, Lord. We offer all that we are to you. Make something beautiful out of our lives. Help us be good neighbors. Amen.